delight at the wonders of his faithfulness and his love towards us. Before we begin, I would like to open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are needy. I am needy. You are glorious. You are wonderful. And Father, as we approach any subject related to your person, we find ourselves treading in ground that's holy. Help us to have proper reverence and a sense of humility. Help us to bow before you both in thankfulness and reverence. Father, we pray for your spirit. We need your spirit to lead us into all the truth. So help us, Father. Help us. Help me to speak. Help the people to hear. Help us all, Father, to experience you tonight and worship you even in preaching and in hearing. And Lord, may we be transformed by your word into a people that is bringing glory to your name in our lives. So we pray these things, Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So if I were to, I'm, gonna, I'm going to throw three words out there. And... Um, I know there's a game like, which one of these doesn't belong with the others? So the three words are hunger, thirst, and unfaithfulness. Hunger, thirst, and unfaithfulness. Now, at least for me, I would not put unfaithfulness in the category with hunger and thirst. But as Timothy just spoke of the book of Exodus, you'll see that in the book of Exodus and going on into Numbers and Deuteronomy, you have the children of Israel in the wilderness, and we're told that they hungered, we're told that they thirsted, and we, told that we are told that they were unfaithful. In fact, this thing continues to go on into Israel as they come into the land of Canaan. First, they're full. As they're in God's favor, they are experiencing God's blessing. But slowly, as time goes along, raiders come in. They take their food, and they begin to be in distress, and they begin to hunger, and they begin to thirst again. And then they cry unto God, and God reminds them that this is a result of their unfaithfulness. Now, it's interesting because in our minds, we do not normally connect those ideas together, but God does. And what we need to understand about God is that when he connects things, there is a reason that they're connected. When he puts themes together, there's a reason those themes are together. And so when we're talking about God's faithfulness, I think really where we have to begin um, is where God begins with us at all times. And that is where we are. Now, 
one of the things that I know in my own life, and I know talking to other Christians, and even through my shorter experience as a believer, is that people struggle with believing that God is going to continue to be faithful. Any unbelief, really, in the end, is whether we believe or not, God keeps promises and is faithful to those promises. And we struggle with that, and the reason we, I believe that all humanity struggles with believing God, at, taking him at his word, even Israel, after he had taken them with a mighty hand, he takes them out of Israel uh, and out of Egypt, he brings them through the Red Sea, surprise, 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 God keeps on working, and yet here they are, and they begin immediately again to, to mistrust him, and really want to ask them the question, why um, would God go through and present his power and his glory in such a way in Egypt if he meant to kill you in the wilderness? That's not even a logical conclusion to come to. But yet, we still, we make similarly illogical conclusions. So where we need to begin is to understand why is it that we find it so difficult to believe that God is faithful. Why is that? Why do we struggle with that? In our day and age, in just very, very recent uh, uh, developments within Christianity, we have seen uh, a prominent Christian leader uh, denounce his faith. We have seen many Christian leaders, men that many of us would have respected, uh, found out in different types of misconduct, whether it's sexual or financial. And there's a tendency for us to become, begin to wonder what is wrong, what's going on. Um, is God going to be faithful in upholding his church? Why are these things happening? And really, we shouldn't be surprised because in the end, it's always the same thing. Hunger, thirst, and unfaithfulness. And I want to explain that. Sin, sin is at the heart of unfaithfulness. Um, God created man for himself. And this morning in the class I was doing, I said that God did not create us to have a relationship with him at a distance. He actually created us to have a relationship with him that was intimate. So we, in our beings, it is in our created beings, who we are, not only to know about God, but to have an intimate relationship with him. And if we don't have an intimate relationship with him, we are not fulfilled and fulfillment is where we start to come into contact with the, these ideas of hunger and thirst. Our unfaithfulness to God has taken us outside of God's fulfilling, intimate relationship with us, and we have become hungry and thirsty as a result because we are not being filled by God's relationship with us at an intimate or very, very close presence. It's interesting, the ideas of hunger, the ideas of thirst are brought up in love language. When we read poems and we read things that are written about 
love, romantic type love, ideas of hunger, eating, drinking, come into those types of relationships. And the reason we don't usually connect these ideas to God's faithfulness is that we're not thinking of our relationship with God in terms of that type of relationship. However, God is continually talking to us about his relationship with us in those terms, in the terms of marriage, in the terms of love, in the terms of even a type of romantic type of attachment. You say, are you crazy? Are you going to talk that way? Um, I'll just say, I feel like I'm in good company. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon uh, often spoke of his relationship with God in terms that would make modern Americans very uncomfortable. So what we have here is a need. We have a need to trust, to rely, to be in a relationship where there is a provider and we are being provided for. We need to be dependent. We need to have a relationship with the giver of every good and perfect gift. Man is hungry, man is thirsting for a faithful God. He is looking for faithfulness. And one of the reasons we see such a rise in, an, in why the remote romantic relationship is so important in our society and yet so messed up is because there's one place in which we hope to find faithfulness, and that's in our relationships that are romantic. We want faithfulness there. When you say someone's cheating on you, people get very angry. That breaks up something deep inside you. When you realize a person that you love is cheating on you. And God uses that terminology when he's talking about Israel leaving him being unfaithful to him. What's interesting is then when you get to the book of Hosea, he starts saying, despite the fact that you keep being unfaithful, I will be faithful. Hosea was told to marry a prostitute. Again, we use this language. It's like, whoa, what are you doing, God? This is kind of uncomfortable. What are you trying to say? And the reason God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute is he's saying, I am married to Israel in that sense, and they are unfaithful. But in Hosea chapter 2, verse 20, God says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord, the faithful one. So where do we see in the New Testament um, both of these ideas kind of come together in a single story? Um, the ideas of messed up romantic relationship, relationships, and, um, and thirst, and being filled, and being satisfied. Where do we find a story that kind of really 
combines all of those ideas into one story. And I believe that's found in John chapter 4, verses 5 through 30. And that is Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. So John, John chapter 4. This is one of the more beautiful stories, I believe, in the New Testament. Chapter 4 of John immediately follows, of course, chapter 3, where we see Jesus talking to Nicodemus, a very, very righteous man, a man who is seeking to reach God by being faithful to God. And Jesus tells him, um, Nicodemus, it's too late. You, you, you've already lost this battle. You have to be born again. And then we come to chapter 4, and we see an opposite type person. Not only is she not a man, it's a woman. She is not trying to live a righteous life. She is not keeping the law. And Jesus is coming to her now and meeting her where she is. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Jesus comes to the Samaritan woman. So we see a lot of differences between these two situations. But you know what's interesting? Is that Nicodemus was missing something too. Nicodemus, the righteous man, was missing something too. Why do you think he snuck out in the middle of the night to go have a conversation with a young rabbi? Why did he have questions? And why was he intent on having them answered? He wasn't, he was thirsty too. He had a lot of things, but he didn't have what he needed. And so there's similarities and there's differences. But one, Jesus, one day, Jesus is walking, and he's, he's out under the hot Palestinian sun, and he's walking with his disciples. He's not had anything to drink, and he's had not had anything to eat for quite a while, and the Scripture tells us he's weary. And so weary, he can't keep going. And so he sends his disciples, they go into town to go buy food, and he sits down on the edge of a well. He doesn't have anything to get water, and he's tired, and it's obvious. A woman comes along out to the well, we all know the story, and Jesus asks her for a drink. Now, it's important for us to realize that he looks tired. It's obvious he's weary, he's dirty, and her response to him is, how in the world are you, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan, to give you water? Now, we can take that different ways, that she was surprised that a Jew would ask her for water. Or you could say that she was saying, well, when you're thirsty, you can deal with Samaritans. It's, uh, when, when you need something, then you might ask for it. But Jesus' response to her is, woman, if you knew who you were talking to, you would be asking me for a drink. And she's, she's surprised by that. Similarly to Nicodemus, when Jesus tells him that she, he must be born again, she's surprised. She's like, you don't have anything to draw. What are you talking about? This is strange. And the conversation goes on, and eventually Jesus points out to the woman that she has had five husbands, and the husband she has now or the man she has now is not even her husband. 
She has a string of broken relationships in her past. There's unfaithfulness. There's an inability to stay in a relationship. And here's a man who's offering her himself. He's saying to her, I am here to give you what you really want. You've had five husbands to try with, to see if you could find fulfillment, and none of them have fulfilled. The man you're with, you've decided you're not even going to marry. You're not even going to make a covenant relationship with him. You're just going to live with him to get what you can get. And the woman's surprised by that. And Jesus goes on to offer her a water, which if she drinks, she will never thirst again. I started with talking a little bit about where Christianity is in America right now. I believe we are where we are because we've stopped believing we stop believing that Jesus gives water that makes us so we don't thirst anymore. When I talk to people, when I, when I hear um, what's going on, obviously there's struggles with sin, but I ask, are you in the word? Are you praying? The most common response is sometimes. And many times it's not at all. And I am at that point, have you drunk of the water that satisfies? Because when you drink of the water that satisfies, then you know that that water satisfies. And it draws you back. It keeps you in his presence. And I'm not saying there won't be times where you turn again to the flesh and you begin to experience that hunger and thirst. But I'm asking, have you ever drunk of the faithful creator? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you got a taste for the eternal? Have you got something that is welling up in you now? A spring in you. Jesus says on the last day, the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, he stands up and he, he proclaims himself to be the living water. And he invites people to come and drink of him. He invites them to come. In the end of Revelation, it says, all who are thirsty, come drink. And you will not thirst anymore. Is the world seeing a people that is just as thirsty as them claiming to follow a Savior who claims to give water that keeps you from ever thirsting again? See, we think, uh, you know, I'm a little different than the world and I have a little bit more passion for the truths of the Scripture than the world and I, I feel like um, I, you know, I go to church, and sometimes I read the Bible, and I'm looking at the Scripture, and I'm saying, there's something much bigger in the Scripture than that kind of life. 
I'm not saying you won't struggle with sin. I'm not saying you won't ever have problems. What I'm saying is what I see in Scripture is a type of religion that transforms lives, that turns people upside down, that shakes their world, that turns things inside out, that surprises, that shocks, that brings people to their knees, makes people cry out, indeed, God is here. And maybe we can say there's a time, we're in a time of dearth, we're in a time of dryness, and I'm saying, why not return then to the faithful God? Because every time I see hunger and thirst in the Scripture, it's because of unfaithfulness and forgetting of the faithful God. It's when we start trying to fix our own problems instead of relying on the faithfulness of our God. And God is faithful. God is faithful Every single time. He does exactly what he says he's going to do. And when he offers water that you can drink and thirst no more, that satisfies, that really brings you to a place where you say, I have found what my soul has always desired, which is exactly what this woman says. I found a man that has told me all that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? I found the one I'm looking for. I found the one who not only knows me perfectly, but is in fact faithful despite that. That comes and offers himself knowing fully my full history and everything I've done wrong and everything that I have done that was in direct opposition to who he is. That was surprising. That was shocking for her that transformed her perspective of the world. And she goes shouting it to her townspeople. What I'm saying is where is that? And why are we satisfied with it not being here? The Christian religion is not about sensationalism, but it is about power. It is about God moving. Paul said, I came to you not in word, but in power and in demonstration of the Spirit of God. If the world is not seeing something that surprises them, that is contrary to what they expect in the church of God, then I really, I must question, I must ask, are they seeing God in us? Because God, from my study of the Word of God, is very surprising. He shocks, he stuns, he turns people's ideas upside down. He never does anything the way we would expect him to do it. And part of the reason the Christian religion spreads so fast was because they were seeing something utterly foreign to anything they had ever seen before. There is a distinction. The distinction is a people who have found what others are continuing to search for. They found the faithful God. They found one they can trust. They found something that they can trust. And in a world where everything is disappointing, that message is a powerful message. That message is the message that we need to be bringing 
the world. Yes, politics are going to fail you. Politicians are going to fail you. The system is going to fail you. The justice system's going to fail you. The financial system's going to fail you. Capitalism's going to fail you. Communism's going to fail you. Socialism's going to fail you. Everything you look to for salvation is going to fail you, but God is not going to fail you. America will fail you. Hating America will fail you. Everything is going to fail you except God. You are going to fail yourself. You're not even going to meet up to your own standards. It's all failure. It's all dissolution. It's all an illusion. It's all vanity of vanities. So remember the Creator. Because He is the only solid, remaining, and faithful thing you'll ever know. And when Jesus came to that woman at the well, He came to a woman who realized that relationships failed her. And it was obvious that she was looking to them to satisfy, to fulfill. That's why she had so many husbands. That's why she kept going back. But she had been failed every time. And when she met Jesus, she knew right away, this man is not going to fail me. This one is not going to disappoint me. This man knows everything I've ever done. And he came to me weary and tired and dusty and thirsty. And he offered me a drink. And it's when we have come to a God who faithfully pursues us. Who never relinquishes his determination to have us holy. To completely own us have us close to him, that we begin to understand the faithfulness of God, that we learn, we learn, we learn to stay near, we learn humility, we learn how to trust, we learn how to depend, but as long as we continue to treat the faithful God just like we treat everything else in the world, expecting him to fail us, and listen to me, That's really what Israel's sin was. They expected God to fail them. Look at it, read through it every single time. Their expectation was that God was not going to carry through on his promises. He was going to fail them. And they ended up in the wilderness for 40 years and they died there because they expected God to fail them. That's not faith. Faith is, I depend on your faithfulness. They entered the land of Israel when they depended on the fact that God would be faithful to his promises. In in Hebrews, we're told that the ones who did not enter in, they did not enter in because of unbelief. You're saying, is my salvation dependent on my faith in God? No. But God... When you know him, when you come in contact with him, all I can say is he hits you in a way 
that makes you rethink everything. And he meets you in a place that's so personal, so personal, that you know he knows you. And you're flabbergasted by it. And you're undone by it. And you turn to him because you need him. And you know that he is what you've always wanted. Deep inside, we fly after so many things that cannot satisfy. But God can. And he does. Um, so for application then, so we saw that God's faithful. We saw that we're unfaithful, and because of our unfaithfulness, because we chose to eat what God had not provided for us to eat, the fruit, the knowledge of good and evil, that was not God's provision for us. He had provided in so many other ways, yet we took the one thing that he says is not provision for you. Because we took, because we ate that fruit, we have always been hungry ever since. The moment Eve bit into that apple, her stomach was empty and it would never be filled again. She would hunger and thirst until she came to know God and the rest of us are in the same place. So we've realized then that Eve's unfaithfulness, Adam's unfaithfulness, led to the human race being hungry, being missing the one thing they need. God's faithfulness in bringing the Messiah answers that need. His faithfulness in bringing, about, bringing Jesus Christ to this earth. And listen, 4,000 years of unfaithfulness on the part of Israel and all kinds of other humans did not in any way deter God from carrying through with his promise. 4,000 years, humanity proved that we would stubbornly remain unfaithful. Jesus Christ came at the time appointed, just as God has promised, despite all of that. And one of the things that that proves to us is that God's faithfulness to us is not dependent on our faithfulness to him. If it was he would have never come in the first place. He came because he's faithful. And he brings us to himself that we might learn humility and faithfulness. And so, how can we apply the, these truths? And these truths, they're out here. They're abstract. We may agree with them. We may disagree with them. But in the end, I hope we agree. I hope we come to the place that we say, yes, I need God in that way. I need God to fill me. I need God to, to bring me to a place where I trust him fully, wholly for my satisfaction, for my wholeness, for my completeness, that I trust him to fill me. When I need filled, and you want to know how can that be done. In the last few months, the Lord has been pressing, pressing, pressing me, pushing, pushing 
Um, as I read his word, I come across thing, the commandment, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And I look at that and I say, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I don't love my neighbor as myself. I don't love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And listen, if you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that is a very passionate love. It's the most extreme. We can't say that about anybody. That we give them whole, complete. You're saying, that's impossible. I can't love God that way. And I say, you're absolutely right. But let's begin. Let's begin. Let's go to God and say, where can I start today? How can I love you more today? How can I love my neighbor more today than I did yesterday? What do you want me to do? And you say, is that, is that legalism? I mean, legalism is a really overused word. Historical Christianity preached, preached, preached. That when Jesus said, strive to enter into the kingdom of heaven, he meant exactly that. It's not that we're saved by that, but we are commanded to do it. That when Jesus says, strive to enter in, because the gate is narrow, that he meant it. He wasn't kidding. His sacrifice is sufficient for our justification, our sanctification. All of it is in the package of salvation. And yet part of our salvation is working out our own salvation with fear and trembling because we know God is working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is part of our salvation. It is part of the process that we trust God enough to obey him. Even when we know, because of what we know about the scriptures, in ourselves we can't. Let me ask you, is it, is faith, is it greater faith to know that you cannot perform what you've been commanded to do in yourself and not do it, or to know that you cannot perform what you've been commanded to do in yourself and attempt it nonetheless. Being absolutely convinced as you go forward that it is not in you personally, in your nature, as you are as a fallen human being to obey God's commands in the way that he commands you to do it, and yet you step out and say, God, you've commanded me to do these things, so I'm going forward, I'm going ahead, I'm going to attempt them trusting that you are working in me both to will and to do of your good pleasure. To me, that's dependence. I say not doing it is because you're depending on yourself and you know you can't. Doing it is saying I can't depend on myself and therefore I depend on the faithful God who has said that he's working in me both to will and to do of his good pleasure and that I am saved unto good works. It is faith that steps into the Red Sea, knowing that God's going to divide it. It is faith that steps into the Jordan and knowing God is going to divide it. And even if he doesn't, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told King Nebuchadnezzar, even if God doesn't save us from your flames, we're still not going to obey you. We're going to obey him. They cannot resist the power of Nebuchadnezzar on their own, and they know that. 
they also know that God can. And so they make the step of faith. They do what they're commanded to do. And Jesus connects doing his commandments closely with the idea of love. Again, the relationship. You do his commandments because you love him. Because he is your hope. He is the one you're looking to for satisfaction. So with that in mind, I ask you, like Jesus asked Peter, do you love him? Do you really love Jesus? Is he everything to you? Is he more than enough? Or is he less than you need? And if your answer is yes, like Peter's was, what does Jesus do when Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you? And he says, okay, feed my lambs. He gives him a command. He gives him something he needs to do. Why? Because Jesus' lambs needed fed. And Peter was the man Jesus was sending to do it. Jesus has things for each one of us to do. He has things that all of us must do. And he's commanded us to do. And he says to us, why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, and you're not doing what I tell you to? You're not obeying. It's a precious thing to be close to God, to be able to obey him as dear children. It's a wonderful thing. It's a glorious thing. And it's a precious thing. So I ask you then, do you love him? Is he your all? If so, then I suggest the following things. I know in my own life there are many things. They weren't necessarily sinful things. But even like Timothy said this morning, they were sinful for me. They were distracting me from my relationship with God, and I knew it. In themselves, you couldn't say they were absolutely sinful things. They weren't necessarily wrong. But I knew in my heart that each time I indulged in them, each time I took part in them, I got further away from God. I had less of a living relationship with him. And the Lord kept pressing me on those things. You know that you need to deal with these things. And so at some point I said, Lord, you know what? You keep telling me I'm just going to do it. And quite frankly, my faith was very weak. I said, I'm doing it for a week. Okay, I'll take these things out of my life for a week. Just one week. I don't know if I'll survive, but I'll take them out of my life for a week. And so I did. At the end of that week, I feel like kind of like Daniel's test. At the end of that week, I was more, more healthy and fat-fleshed. My spiritual life was beginning to rise up again. I was beginning to see God more clearly. I was beginning to understand his truth more fully. His, his closeness, his reality were more noticeable. One week. So, you know, at the end of one week, I was like, you know what? I think I'll just keep on doing this because this is wonderful. Fill my mind with truth. I'm taking the time I've been using, wasting, and I'm using that time to fill my mind with truth. I'm reading the Word of God. I'm, I'm contemplating the Word. I'm in books that point me back to Christ. I'm thinking these things through. And what do you know? 
my mind is purifying. It's becoming cleaner. It's becoming more pure. Now, again, if you're not a believer, all of these things, they, they may not have any effect at all. But as a believer in Christ Jesus, they will begin to have their effect. Why? Because God is in you both to will, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He really is in you. And the Spirit, he, he, he testifies and he works. And God has means and all of those things work together. And it's a matter of trust. Because, again, these things don't work the way the world would say they would work. But they work the way God says they work. And God tells us, do it. Uh, Jesus told him, if you're right, you know, if your right hand is offending you, cut it off. Cut it off. Just be done with it. How much less these very, very, very little things in our life that we keep holding on to despite the fact we know they're not good for us. Despite the fact we know they're hurting our relationship with God. Secondly, get into the Word of God. Be in it all the time. Consider it, pray over it, think it through. Third, pray. Pray and praise and give thanks. You say those are all very, very simple things. And I say absolutely they are very, very simple things and things that most people aren't doing. They're simple, they're easy. In a way, but when you go to do them, we find out that we're in a battle with Satan and he doesn't want us to be involved in those things at all. And so, yeah, simple things become very, very difficult things. It becomes very, very hard to pray. It becomes very, very hard to keep your mind on the Word of God. And that should not be surprising to us. But God is worthy. So let me close with this. In the end, the gospel is a restored relationship with God. The good news is that our relationship through Jesus Christ can be restored with God by trusting in him. But who, who would think that having a restored relationship with somebody that you completely ignore is all that big of a deal? That's not a restored relationship, is it? That's no relationship at all. Our God is faithful. And he calls us into his presence so that we can enjoy him. So that we can experience him. And if the gospel is offering us relationship with God, and we're looking for it to get us out of hell, we're looking to it for it to give us something it never offered. It offered to restore our relationship with God and by restoring our relationship with God, save us from his wrath. But it's not the other way around. You don't just get one. You can say, I'll take one and I'll leave the other. God wants a relationship. And the gospel is telling us how we can have that. And if we believe the gospel, then we'll want to have a relationship with God.
So with that, I'm going to close. Father, I thank you for your word. Apply it to your glory and to your honor. Our God, you are our hope and you are our salvation. And in you we trust. Who else can we go to? Help us, Father, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.